Turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew, where we find the Lord Jesus once again standing trial. Today, in chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Matthew 27, 11 through 26. You may remember from the previous chapter that Jesus has already stood a mockery of a trial before the Jewish court and has been found, in their opinions, deserving of death. But as the Gospel of John informs us, the Jewish officials had no authority to actually follow through upon their predetermined death sentence. And so up in chapter 27 here, verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. They took Jesus to stand before the Roman court, in other words, so that they could get the Romans to deliver upon the desired death sentence, which they themselves could not effect. And as we'll see now, beginning in verse 11, the Jewish leaders got from this Roman trial exactly what they were Looking for. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, our hearts to hear your truth to understand your son and to love him and serve him and 
trust him and choose him. We ask in his name. Amen. Now, as we think today about the trial of the Lord Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate, I want us to focus our attention in four different places this morning. And I'd like to begin by focusing the camera lens, as it were, on this Roman governor Pilate. Let's consider, first of all, Pilate. What can we say about this man who washed his hands in verse 24 and gave the prince of life over to death? Well, I think the chief characteristic of Pilate's dealings with the Lord Jesus, the chief feature that we see on his face, so to speak, is that of cowardice, spinelessness, lack of fortitude, and backbone. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows, verse 18, that Jesus has been brought up on these charges because the Jewish leaders are envious of him. And Luke informs us that Pilate said aloud that he found no guilt in this defendant who was standing before him. And yet, Pilate does not have the courage to simply drop his gavel and make the pronouncement official, I find no guilt in him, and send Jesus' accusers packing. He doesn't have the fortitude to do it. Instead, he starts engaging in legal machinations, trying to wiggle himself free from having to actually make a decision here. First, according to the Gospel of Luke, Pilate tries to slough this trial off onto another jurisdiction. Oh, he's a Galilean? Well, that's Herod's territory. And he sends Jesus off to be questioned by Herod. And then when Herod sends Jesus back, having also found no guilt in him, Pilate is forced to find another solution to this quandary. What is he going to do with Jesus now that he's back? He knows he's innocent, and Herod has confirmed that fact, and so Pilate's conscience is apparently having trouble acquiescing to the Jewish demand for crucifixion, and yet he doesn't have the guts to just close the case and let Jesus go. Because of his cowardice, because he's unwilling to stand against these Jewish leaders, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. His conscience seems to be telling him one thing, confirmed by his wife in verse 19, but his cowardice will not allow him to act on what he knows is right. His cowardice will not allow him to pronounce the verdict that he knows is correct, namely, not guilty, case dismissed. And yet, Pilate finds another potential out here, doesn't he? Because it's Passover season. And verse 16, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted, a kind gesture and probably also a politically expedient one. And this year, quite an opportunity for Pilate to escape his conscience. He doesn't have the courage to pronounce the not guilty verdict, but maybe he can get Jesus out of this mess and get himself out of this mess in a slightly different way. I know what I'll do. I'll appeal to the gathered crowds regarding this Passover pardon. The Jewish leaders who have handed him over to me are envious of this Jesus, verse 18. But if I put Jesus before the people, verse 17, 
as a candidate for the annual pardon, then surely the general public will go with that. Especially if I stack the deck by placing him next to Barabbas, this foul criminal that we have locked up for robbery, John 18, and for insurrection and murder, Luke 23. This will give me the out I need, for surely the crowds will pick Jesus, and all this mess will be over. Now, of course, I've put all those words in Pilate's mouth, but I I think that must have been something like what was going on in his mind here in verses 15 through 18. He's looking for a way to get Jesus off the hook and to get himself off the hook too. And so he's going to try and take advantage of the Passover pardon. Knowing, verse 18, that the leaders who handed Jesus over have issues with this Jesus, Pilate appeals to the people in verse 17 instead. He gives them the opportunity to choose between a notorious prisoner and Jesus who is called Christ, Jesus who is called Messiah. And given such a choice, surely the general public will side with Jesus. And Jesus will therefore go free without Pilate ever having to actually make a decision. And on one level, what Pilate does here is perhaps noble. He is trying to set Jesus free after all. And yet, the way that Pilate goes about it still demonstrates that he's having trouble standing on his own two feet morally. Pilate is still demonstrating not much of a backbone. And even less so when the crowds, in verse 21, surprise him by asking him to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. He tries to reason with them in verses 22 and 23, which again shows some level of conscience and perhaps even nobility. But here's the thing. Pilate is the Roman governor. Pilate doesn't have to stand here trying to talk sense into this rabid crowd. All Pilate has to do is pick up his gavel and bring it down firmly upon his desk with the authority of Rome and say the words, not guilty, and Jesus will go free. Indeed, justice demands that this is what Pilate ought to do. That's his responsibility. But Pilate cannot bring himself to do it. And as the chants of crucify intensify, Pilate can be seen in verse 24 symbolically washing his hands as if to say, it's not my fault what's about to happen. But it is his fault. Partially. No, Pilate didn't want this to happen. And yes, it was the Jewish leaders and the crowds who pushed so vociferously for Jesus' death. So they bear even more of the weight of guilt. But Pilate bears a heavy millstone of guilt around his neck as well. Because he has the power to do differently. He has the authority to call a halt to the whole thing. He has the power of the empire behind him. But he gives in to these Jewish leaders and acquiesces to the crowds whom they have stirred up. And he hands Jesus over in verse 26 to be crucified. Now it's true that all of this was meant to be in the providence of God, and yet as it relates to Pilate's personal responsibility here, he is a coward. Chief among the characteristics 
of this man, at least as we focus our lens upon him in this episode in his life, is cowardice, lack of moral backbone. And I wonder if his indecision relates or resonates with anyone today. I wonder how many of us in this room this morning, if someone were to focus the camera lens upon certain situations in our lives, I wonder how many of us would look something like Pilate. Some of you may be in situations right now, perhaps at work or in some family dynamics, maybe in a business dealing or in relationships with the opposite sex. Some of you may be in a situation right now where you feel caught between a rock and a hard place, stuck between what your conscience and what the Word of God tells you is right on the one hand and what outside pressures are saying is expedient on the other hand. And you're wavering, perhaps, waffling, perhaps. Is that you today? Maybe your boss or some friend, or some family pressure, or the deceitfulness of riches is telling you that you really must do X. And you know that X is not right. And yet you haven't had the courage to drop your own gavel and side with the Lord. Is that a snapshot of anyone's life this morning? I hope not, but it may be. Maybe you're hoping like Pilate that some out will present itself to you such that you won't have to take a firm stance. You won't have to make that hard decision. You won't have to stand with the Lord. But I urge you this morning that by God's grace, the gavel is in your hand. And you need to choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And if you will drop the gavel on the Lord's side, in favor of holiness, in favor of truth. It is not mere Rome who will back your decision, but heaven itself. For the Lord declares, those who honor me, I will honor. So choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And let me say this as well before we leave this point. Some of you might be suffering from the pilot syndrome, from waffling and indecision, from cowardice to follow through on what you know you ought to do, not merely perhaps in terms of some specific decision, but as it relates perhaps to your whole life decision as to whether you're going to follow Jesus. Some of you may be as much on the fence as to what you will do with Jesus as Pilate ever was. The Bible has been bearing witness to you for a long time that this Jesus really is the Christ, that he really is the only Savior, that he really does deserve your allegiance. And so you know what the verdict should be, just like Pilate. But perhaps, like Pilate, other considerations are holding you back from casting in your lot with Jesus completely, from publicly declaring that you've done so. Maybe like Pilate, you're listening to outside voices and worrying about what the implications of siding with Jesus might be instead of just dealing with the facts that are right before you and doing what you know you must do. And I urge you today, if that's you, to vacillate no more. I urge you to drop your gavel today and side with Jesus once and for all. Trust Jesus once and for all. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Someone in this room surely needs to come to Jesus today. So there is Pilate and all his indecision and cowardice. 
But let's focus the lens of our attention now in the second place on the crowds in Jerusalem on this day. The crowds. We see them red-faced here in Matthew 27 chanting, Crucify him! Crucify him! But we should ask, why are they doing that? Why are they against Jesus so strongly here? Well, the answer, and this is the characteristic which I want us to focus on in regard to these crowds, the answer is that these crowds have allowed themselves so easily to be worked into a frenzy. We need to notice how easily these crowds have allowed themselves to be worked into a frenzy. Now, it seems to me that up until this point in the Gospels, opposition to Jesus has not primarily arisen from among the crowds, from among the general populace. The Jewish leaders, far more than the proletariat, are the ones who have been taking issue with Jesus. Indeed, Jesus has been in and around the city of Jerusalem for several days when we come to Matthew 27, and there has been no popular uprising against him. In fact, just a few days ago, remember, he rode into town to shouts of Hosanna. Now, there's no way of knowing whether the crowds on that day were made up of the same people who gathered on this day in Matthew 27. But you get the point, I think. It wasn't primarily from among the general public that Jesus faced opposition. Indeed, as I said before, when Pilate placed Jesus side by side with Barabbas, it seems to me anyway that he expected the general public, that he expected the crowds to side with the prophet from Galilee. And yet it was finally the will of the crowds as they chanted for his crucifixion that led Pilate to wash his hands here and to hand Jesus over to be crucified. And the question is, what happened? What happened with the crowds? We know that not everybody in Jerusalem was a true follower of the Lord Jesus, far from it. But just a few days ago, it seems to me, it would have been hard to imagine the streets filled with people campaigning for his death, not from among the general public. So what happened? Well, we're told in verse 20 what happened. Pilate had asked the people gathered outside to choose between Barabbas and Jesus... And we read in verse 20 that the chief priests and the elders, the leaders, in other words, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas, and not only that, but to ask for the death penalty for this Jesus. The Gospel of Mark says that the chief priests stirred up the crowd. That's how Mark puts it, which adds even a little more detail to the portrait here. The chief priests stirred up the crowd. And look at the frenzy that ensued. The people began chanting as one man, crucify him, crucify him. And when I hear the word stirred up in the 
Gospel of Mark, and when I see the furor that ensued among the masses, I can't help but think of those scenes, which many of us have seen on television, of thousands of people being whipped into a mass hysteria by some zealous and manipulative leader. Can you picture it in your mind? Here's a man giving an impassioned speech with great oratorical skill and great fury and often manipulative technique. And when he finishes, the people spread out below his balcony all begin chanting and shouting as one man. And they're ready to proceed with the leader's agenda at any and all costs. I'm not sure if that's exactly how the chief priests and elders did it in verse 20, but that's the result they got. Because here are the crowds, after the persuasion of their leaders, raising their voices in unison in verses 22 and 23. And when Pilate gives his last meager attempt at a rebuttal in verse 24, they reply in verse 25 that they will have Jesus' blood at any cost. His blood shall be on us and on our children. What a horrible thing the people of Jerusalem did that day, chanting the Lord Jesus to a death sentence. But I want you to see that it doesn't appear that that was their original intention when they gathered that day. It doesn't appear that they showed up on Pilate's door that day intending to send this man, Jesus, to a Roman cross. If it had been, it seems unlikely that they'd have needed to be persuaded, that they'd have needed to be stirred up by the Jewish leaders. They didn't arrive at Pilate's door that day looking for a crucifixion. In fact, comparing with Mark, it appears that they arrived to ask for their yearly pardon of a prisoner. But by the end, they had gotten that in the form of Barabbas, and they'd also chanted Jesus to the cross. By the time the proceedings had ended, by the time they had listened to their leaders, they were persuaded, they were stirred up, and Jesus' blood was on their hands. And all of this must be a lesson to us. must be a lesson to us. All of this prompts me to ask, how easily persuaded are you? How easily stirred up are you? How easily manipulated are you? How unthinkingly do you listen to and fall right in line with the various talking heads in our day? Now, the look of things is sometimes different in our day, since we are often listening to the manipulators through the medium of a screen in the privacy of our own homes, but there are still forces at work in this world that are every day seeking to stir you up to believe certain things. For instance, about sexual ethics. To think a certain way about the value of human life and the origins of human life. There are still people seeking to persuade you to fall in line with the world's theories about the unabsoluteness of truth. People seeking to stir you up to be all in a lather about your rights and really about their agendas. And you must ask yourself, am I a person of principle? Am I thoughtful and reasonable about what is true? Do I think things through? 
And am I willing to go against the grain where necessary, or am I just a windsock fluttering in the breeze of the latest persuasive speech? I hope that the surprising about face of the crowds in Jerusalem here will sober us as to our need to be thoughtful and principled in a world gone mad, a world constantly stirred up by the latest campaign. So we fixed our lens on Pilate, the cowardly governor, and on the all too easily manipulated crowds and us like them as we watch TV and read Facebook and so on. Hopefully not us like them, but potentially us like them. And now in the third place, let's bring the lens to a little sharper focus on the criminal Barabbas. Let's look thirdly at Barabbas. As we survey these scenes surrounding the trial and the suffering and the death of our Lord, there are perhaps many faces that are stamped indelibly upon our memories. We can picture the red, hot, angry complexions of the mob here chanting crucify. We can see perhaps the high brows of the chief priests, the tormented expressions on the face of Peter and of Judas. We can remember and call to our minds the weakness in the face of Pilate here. And most of all, we can consider the blood-soaked countenance of our Lord himself. But one of the faces that stands out amongst the most memorable of all is the face of this man Barabbas, a robber, an insurrectionist, a murderer. Not a very attractive face, we might imagine, but as we find him here in verse 26, I picture Barabbas actually with a mixture of relief and surprise and likely even joy spread across his features because they have just opened the door of his cell and unlatched his chains and pulled him out and set him free. Absolutely, completely free. Even after all that he has been entangled with. He is the chosen prisoner this year. He is the one lucky man to whom the governor, as was his custom at the Passover, has granted release, verse 26. And I don't know for sure, but I wonder if perhaps Barabbas has heard or if he is told as he comes out of his prison cell that the decision came down to a choice between himself and this man called Jesus. That the decision has come down between him, a murderer, and Jesus, in whom the governor could find no guilt, no wrongdoing. Jesus, whose reputation for kindness and compassion has spread far and wide, maybe even through the windows and into the prison cell where Barabbas has been staying. Jesus doesn't deserve to die, does he? And yet somehow, in the most amazing turn of events, this Jesus, who actually deserves to go free, has been condemned, and Barabbas, who knows himself to be a guilty criminal, is allowed to walk. He released Barabbas for them. 
But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. It's almost like they've traded places, isn't it? Jesus is going to a cross that rightly belongs to Barabbas, and Barabbas is going to walk in the liberty and breathe the fresh air that Jesus himself actually deserves. What a swap for Barabbas, right? Not so much for the innocent man who is going to the cross, but for Barabbas, this is an amazing deal. And while we recognize that taking place as it did in a human courtroom, this is a grand miscarriage of justice on the part of Pilate and the leaders and the people, I hope we can also see and marvel at how this exchange of Jesus for Barabbas actually mirrors that glorious and righteous exchange, what Martin Luther famously called the great exchange that was made in God's courtroom on our behalf who belong to Christ. Because we are Barabbas, aren't we? Guilty, condemned, hopeless sinners deserving of death and drawing closer to it with every breath. And Jesus is as clean in God's courtroom as ever he was in Pilate's. God finds no guilt in him. Jesus has committed no sin. He does not deserve to die. And yet on that Good Friday, a great exchange was made, wasn't it? The Father sent Jesus to the cross that we deserve and down into the tomb whose mouth was agape for people like us. And because he did that, like Barabbas, we who believe get to walk free. We who believe are granted full pardon by the great judge. And even better than Barabbas, we who believe are declared positively righteous in God's courtroom. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what a portrait we have when we zoom in on Barabbas here. Indeed, for all of us who believe on Christ, it is virtually a self-portrait. When we focus the lens on Barabbas' face, we see our own, guilty and condemned and yet suddenly released because of this man Jesus who went to the cross that his people deserved. And we sing with Philip Bliss, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And speaking of the Savior, it is upon him that I want us to fix our gaze now in the fourth place before we finish. We've looked at Pilate, the governor. We've looked at the crowds in Jerusalem. (coughs) We've looked at Barabbas, the pardoned criminal. But let's just finish with an ever so brief look at the Lord Jesus himself. Had we been there that good Friday morning observing the various people gathered together in and around Pilate's headquarters, surely we would have wanted to give our closest attention to the man at the center of it all, to the Lord Jesus. And yet, when we fix our eyes upon him here, there doesn't at first glance perhaps appear that there's much to see. Jesus responds to Pilate's initial question, in verse 11, and he responds at even a little more length, we learn in the Gospel of John, than what Matthew records here. 
But when the Jewish leaders began accusing him in verse 12, he did not answer. And when Pilate follows up their accusations in verse 13, Jesus remains tight-lipped. Verse 14, he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. Now, all of this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here by not opening his mouth. But Jesus also did not open his mouth And maybe Isaiah prophesied that he would not open his mouth because Jesus is not trying to win this case. Truly, that's a big part of what's going on here, right? Jesus doesn't argue his case because he is not out to win his case. He's out rather to win your case, if you will trust him. He's out to do the will of his Father here. And the will of his Father is that he drink this cup The will of his Father is that he go to this cross. The will of his Father is that he make this great exchange and that you and I who believe go free. That you and I who belong to him have our case won. Jesus did not open his mouth because his great desire and the great desire of his Father was to make this exchange, to rescue sinners, to bring many sons to glory, you included if you belong to Christ. So as we watch our Jesus here, silent before his accusers, marvel, my friends, at his self-control. Marvel at his resolve to do the Father's will. And marvel, too, at the great love and mercy of God that devised such a plan for the only begotten Son to die so that so many Barabbases might go free. Marvel here at the heavenly father marvel at the glories of his son and by the power of the holy spirit believe